0: This evening in the book of Jonah, and we come to Jonah chapter 4, which will be our last sermon in the book of Jonah for a while. And so, you may follow along by reading in your worship order, or if you'd like to turn to the book of Jonah itself, there you will find our sermon text for this evening. Last week, when we left Jonah, we left him in the city of Nineveh, he had just preached his heart out. Remember that he was sent there to preach a message that God had given him, yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown. And in response to that brief sermon, the whole city of Nineveh repented in sackcloth and in ashes. Nineveh experienced what can only be described as a massive scale revival sparked by Jonah's preaching. Jonah experienced and witnessed what most of us preachers can only hope and dream about. That he preached a sermon that had a positive effect on people's lives, and he happened to see a fruitful harvest of gospel ministry. And yet we're going to see in Jonah 4 that he had a very different response than most preachers would have had if they would preached a sermon like that and saw that kind of response. The response was quite different, by the way, than the one he got in his own country, in his own hometown, among his own people. Remember, we saw earlier that according to 2 Kings 14, Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, who was the king of Samaria. That king was known as a king which did evil in the sight of the Lord for some 40 years. You can read all about the sins and treacheries of Jeroboam and Samaria and God's judgments against them in the book of Amos. Amos, the prophet, by the way, was apparently a contemporary of Jonah, and he did some of the heavy lifting in terms of preaching. We don't know exactly what Jonah preached in those days, but they preached at the same time. Both were preaching God's word to God's people and getting the same response from the people. Rebellion and resistance against God's word. Well, despite Jonah's best efforts among his own people... The Hebrews of Samaria, they refuse to repent and believe God's word. And yet, when Jonah shows up and preaches for one day in the city of Nineveh, the whole city repents and believes and cries out to God for deliverance. So, as we said last week, they repented and God relented, and yet we're going to see Jonah with quite a different response than both Nineveh and God. And that brings us to our sermon text uh, for this evening. I want you to pay close attention to Jonah's reaction as you hear the word of God from Jonah chapter 4. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word, as I will read Jonah chapter 4 in its entirety. The word of God reads, It pleased, I'm sorry, the word of God reads, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than one hundred twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading the hearing and the preaching of his word and all the church says you may be seated so again you see that there is rejoicing in heaven and yet there is resentment on earth in this prophet why well we see in hebrew especially that nineveh turned from its evil way and god repented of the evil that he said he was going to do to them and then we learn that it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he was angry about it. But why was he so angry that God repented from overthrowing Nineveh? We've already seen in this series that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and that the Assyrians were mortal enemies of Israel, of the Sumerians. And now we see why Jonah was so reluctant and so resistant to preach there in the first place. It's not, as many people might imagine, that Nineveh was such a terrible city and it was violent and there was crime there and he was afraid of being in the big city. No, he tells us in his own words why he did not want to go to Nineveh. He says to the Lord in verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee the Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah tells us in his own words that he was reluctant to go to Nineveh because he knew how gracious and merciful God is. He knew that God would end up saving Nineveh and he didn't want to have anything to do with that. James Jordan explains in an article on this something interesting. He says that uh, this is actually in in a section of his book, Through New Eyes, but he says, Jonah had been reluctant to preach to Nineveh fearing that God would convert those people and thereby raise them up as a powerful nation. He knew that Israel deserved judgment and that God had threatened to take the gospel to another nation thereby raising it up as a weapon to punish Israel as it is written in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 31 verse uh, 32 verse 21, where God's word says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Jordan goes on to say, sure enough, the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and Jonah was horrified. In spite of her sins, Jonah loved wayward Israel, but hated to see the gospel taken from her to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. Jonah knew the truth about the living God. He had already seen the Lord draw straight lines with crooked sticks in his own country. 2 Kings 14 talks about the affliction of Israel. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of the wicked king Jeroboam, son of Joash. God was drawing straight lines with crooked sticks in Samaria. So instead of blotting out Israel for her idolatry and her sins, God was showing them mercy. It was a severe mercy, but it was mercy nonetheless. And so Jonah knew by personal experience, firsthand experience that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love And relenting from disaster. He could see it in his own country. But now that he is among the Ninevites, he doesn't want God to act that way. He also knew this truth about God, not just from his firsthand experience, but also from the scriptures, from divine revelation. Think of all the ways this language is used in the Scriptures. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by, and he proclaimed these great truths to Moses himself. And then later on, when the Hebrews rebelled and refused to go in and take possession of the land that God had promised to give them, Moses has to go and remind the Lord of His great power by reciting these words back to God. The psalmist sang these words in their times of need, and the prophets reminded God's people of these amazing truths in their moments of crisis. All of God's people had learned these truths by catechesis. question might have been, who is God? And the answer would be Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear that? Sadly, many people misunderstand these things and they get all of this exactly backwards. Maybe you've had these thoughts in your life as well. Man, man's imagination about God is very different than God's revelation of himself. If you don't hear anything else the rest of this sermon, I want you to at least hear this and mark it down and mark it down well. That God is far more gracious and merciful and loving than he is angry. God is far more gracious and merciful and loving than he is angry. His anger is but for a moment, but his grace is for a lifetime. And so many people get this backwards. They imagine God is being angry and ferocious and out to get us. But that is not how God reveals himself to us. Jonah knew that so well that he resisted going on mission with God to a city that was under God's judgment, under wrath because of its sin, because he didn't want God to show them mercy. When he saw God showing mercy to those people who deserved wrath and justice in his mind, guess what he did? He threw a little temper tantrum. He started drumming his heels on the desert floor. Unlike the Lord, Jonah was slow to listen. He was quick to speak and he was quick to become angry. He wanted God to be gracious and merciful towards him, God to be slow to anger towards him, abounding in steadfast love towards him, relent from disaster when it comes to Israel, but he wants God to be grievous and malicious and swift to anger and abounding in catastrophic wrath and releasing disaster when it came to the nations and the enemies of Israel. You notice something about Jonah, that his systematic theology was rock solid on paper. He understood something about the attributes of God, but his missional zeal was dust and ashes in real life. He wanted a God who was domesticated and under his control, but not a God who would do the unthinkable like save sinners who deserve wrath. We know this is true about Jonah because he says, in effect... I knew that you were on mission to save the world and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I knew you were going to let that big fish off the hook and I can't stand it when you do the catch and release thing with these monsters. But that's what God was doing. Jonah would have fit in very well with some evangelical pastors in our area who care very much if God saves America, but doesn't care at all if God damns the nation's especially those nasty Middle Eastern terrorists like those people in Nineveh. Now, before you jump on my bandwagon here and judge Jonah the prophet too harshly, let's ask ourselves a few questions. If God spared the lives of terrorists who wrecked your homeland, how would you feel? If God saved the terrorists who hijacked planes and crashed them in the buildings and tore up the world, Say on 9-11, how would you react? If God saved the terrorists who slaughtered some of your brothers and sisters in Egypt or or Syria or anywhere in the Middle East, would you rejoice with them or not? And let's bring it a little bit closer to home now, because even all of that feels distant, doesn't it? But what if God spared a church full of legalists? Or what if he spared a congregation, a fundamentalist, or a bunch of hypocrites? Or how would you feel about God saving your mortal enemy, someone that you know full well deserves God's wrath? How would you feel about that? That's where Jonah is. And this is how we relate to Jonah. The truth is that we often want grace for ourselves, but we want justice for others. We want God to show us mercy, but he wants, but we want Him to get other people. Something interesting happens in Jonah 4. Jonah learns the hard truth that not only did God not overthrow the city of Nineveh, but now Jonah is learning through this act of severe mercy by God that God is now overthrowing the prophet Jonah. He's overthrowing his heart, his life, and worldview. Jonah becomes a wreck. He's a train wreck. And not only is he throwing this temper tantrum, but his anger so uh, drives him away from the Lord. Now he flees the face of the Lord once again. Notice he goes to the east side of town. He's so angry over God's display of mercy and grace that he actually asks God to take his own life. Not take God's life, but take his life. Now, that might sound shocking to you, but if you know the story of the scriptures well, you'll know that he's not the first prophet to ever ask for this kind of thing. Elijah, the prophet, for example, under similar circumstances, asked God to take his life as well. And to defend the prophets a little bit, they were passionate guys. They were so passionate that some of their contemporaries said that they were actually a little bit on the crazy side of life. And still we see this prayer is selfish. It's childish. It's foolish for Jonah to pray in this way. Why is he doing this? He's going against his own preaching. He's not practicing what he preached. He's not practicing what he prayed. He's clinging to worthless idols. And once again, we see him sinking deeper into the pit, forsaking God's mercies for himself and for others. That's why God says, do you do well to be angry? I mean, what's going on here, Jonah? And when you're reading the story, you notice that Jonah did what any adolescent would do in a situation like this. He gives God the silent treatment. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't answer him. Do you do well to be angry? And he just turns away and he storms out of the city. When Jonah realized that God was not going to do what Jonah wanted God to do, he did what many Protestant evangelical zealots do. And you see it clearly. First he pitched a fit and then he went and planted a new and improved church. We don't know the name of the church, but I suggest the name for it. it might be something like the East Side Church of Justice, subtitle, A Shelter for Critics, Cynics, and Complainers. Because that's where Jonah ends up. Throughout the biblical story, by the way, we see that whenever someone moves east, that's a bad sign. It's a really bad sign. It's a sign that someone is moving away from the presence of God. And now Jonah is finally getting what he always wanted. He's been trying to get away from God's face from chapter 1. And now in chapter 4, he might have accomplished his mission. In the very beginning of the scriptures, we see that Adam was driven out of the garden towards the east. That Cain drifted around the land east of Eden. The people moved east and built a skyscraping tower in Shinar. Lot settled in the east near Sodom, and ultimately the Jews are going to end up in the east in Babylonian captivity. So to go east in the scriptures is a bad thing. It means you're going into exile away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, if you haven't figured out by now, is in a really bad place. He's in exile, sulking in the darkness of his anger. Meanwhile, the entire city of Nineveh is free, celebrating in the light of God's grace. Now, a lot of interesting things happen here, and there's a lot of fun stuff we will do, but I'm not going to take the time for it. But notice that... Uh, Three different occasions here, we see that God appointed something. This is like God appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. Well, now God appoints a plant and then he appoints a worm and then he appoints a scorching wind. And all of this is intended to grab Jonah and get his attention. We see Jonah is very upset with this turn of events. It's almost as as if God is playing games with him. One moment he comforts him, the next moment he disciplines him. One moment he comforts him, the next moment he disciplines him. And Jonah's like, what is going on? He's so upset about these things. He's sowing uh, more concern for his country more concerned for his theological system, more concerned for his reputation, more concerned for his creature comforts, his own well-being, and other vain delusions than he shows for the lost souls of the city of Nineveh. Again, by clinging to worthless idols, Jonah is forfeiting the grace that God has freely offered to him. Now, I wonder if any of you can relate to Jonah in any way. Have any of you ever been there? You've just ever been so angry with God over something? And I don't mean angry with God over something petty the way Jonah was, but just angry with God. The psalmists wrestle with this sort of thing. There are moments in which God does something in life and we wonder why, and we might even feel justified in our anger. It's okay to be angry. We're told to be angry, but not to sin in our anger. It's a part of our human emotion and expression. So Jonah's not in trouble here because he's angry. He's angry because his anger is now mismanaged. He's out of control with it. The anger is now consuming him and controlling him and wrecking his life, warping his view of God. So many of us can relate to Jonah if we think about it. Well, I'll give you one experience that I had several years ago in which uh, I called this sort of my Nineveh moment. Uh, I will spare you all the details, but this goes back about 17 years ago. And it happened to be in a time in my life when I had discovered the gospel of God's grace. I didn't know what the gospel was before this time. I learned the gospel. I thought I'd been preaching the wrong gospel. I'm probably in the wrong community of people. Very upsetting, unsettling time. Talk about being overthrown. And through a turn of events, through God's providence, I ended up leaving the foothills of Colorado and moving down to the swamps of Louisiana. So one week, my family and I are playing in the snow. The next, mo- the next week, we're burning in Hades. Suffering in central Louisiana. Suff- suffice it to say for now that I felt compelled. I don't want to blame the Lord. In the past, I would say the Lord moved me to Louisiana. I don't want to lay that on him, but maybe he has something to do with it. But suffice it to say for now, I felt compelled to go back into serving in this traditional Church of Christ in a college town in central Louisiana. Now, again, I had recently discovered the gospel of God's grace. And for my part, I was determined to never, ever serve among those legalistic Church of Christ people ever again. I'd had my sack full of them and tired of being there. I didn't want to be in their midst anymore. Good riddance, right? I'm moving on. And then I end up in this place. And I meet some of the sweetest people you could ever hope to meet. And I still didn't want to be there for a variety of reasons. And so I decided to do the one thing that was in my control, the one thing that would ensure a short tenure among them. I would sabotage my own ministry by preaching the gospel of God's grace without apologies. Not blinking, not watering down. I'm just going to let them have it. I'm just going to let it go full bore. And every week I thought, surely they're going to fire me this time. And they didn't. And the weeks turned into months and the summer ended and summer turned into fall. Something was happening among those people that I did not expect. And that is they were hearing the gospel of grace with joy and receiving it by faith and there I was, as hot and muggy as a Louisiana summer, begging to get out, resenting the Lord for sending me there, resenting them for not sending me away. And as fall took over summer, I realized that I have been acting like the prophet Jonah. Who in the world do I think I am? Natchitoches, Louisiana was my Nineveh. It was a place that God used to overthrow me and to show me that God is on mission to save all kinds of people in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. What does Jonah 4 teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his mission? It teaches us that Jesus is the true and better prophet, who wept over the great city of God. Unlike Jonah, who goes into Nineveh kicking and screaming and upset at the mercy and grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ looks over the city of God and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, And stone those who were sent to it. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some time passes, and Jesus draws near to that city again, and he weeps over it, saying, Unlike the prophet Jonah who goes into the city weeping and crying over his own life and his own disillusionment, Jesus goes into the city weeping and crying over the sins of people, over the sins of the world, over the children who do not know their left hand from the right hand, over the cattle who are going to be slaughtered, over the People who dwell there who desperately need to hear good news. Far too often we are like the prophet Jonah, keeping this good news to ourselves, withholding it from others for whatever reason. Reasons of comfort and security, reasons of fear, reasons of doubt, whatever they happen to be. And yet God reminds us again and again in his word Should I not be concerned about these things? And we see that in Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, God demonstrating for us his ultimate concern for the world, his ultimate concern for us. As God draws near and enters into our story and comes to our cities and comes to dwell among us and calls us to repent and believe the good news, calls us to turn from our sin. And to trust in the Lord once again, perhaps he might relent from the disaster that is pending. But Jesus is also revealed and did this in this story to us in the person of God. When Jonah speaks to God and says, I knew that you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, It's in that declaration of faith and that confession of faith that we see a glimpse, a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. For who among us, who among all the gods, who among all of the spirits, who among all the forces in the world is as gracious and merciful and slow to anger and loving and kind as the Lord Jesus Christ? It is in the person and work of Jesus that we see these truths fleshed out and we reap the benefits of this God. Jesus Christ has drawn near to us in the mercy and grace of God. He's withheld anger from us. He has demonstrated his steadfast love and kindness towards us. And for those of us who have turned from sin and trusted in him, he has even relented from sending judgment upon us. And not only withheld judgment, but filled in that with mercy and grace and life. I hope that by now you have seen true stories of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Jonah. That you can see that even this book is about the person and work of Christ on behalf of his people. Isn't God so tender-hearted, so merciful that He's come to us in our time of need? And aren't we thankful that He has shown pity to us who are ignorant in our sins? Let us pray together. Almighty God, whose compassions fail not and whose loving kindness reaches unto the world's end, we give you humble thanks for opening nations to the light of your truth for making paths in the deep waters and highways in the desert, for planting Christ's church in all the earth. We ask that you grant all people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your son's church. Grant unto us, your servants, a living and active faith that we may labor diligently to make known to all peoples the blessed gift of eternal life in Christ who came to preach peace to them that are far off and to them that are near. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.